Well, the scripture reading this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, as I said, chapter 2. This morning we will be reading verses 1 through 12. I want to encourage you to follow along and to leave that open throughout the message this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you can grab one of the ones that's provided there in the seat back in front of you. Uh, Matthew chapter 2 is the very first page of the New Testament. You can find that on page 806, 7, 807. Thanks, Steve. Please listen as I read. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." And Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem saying, Go, search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Going into the house, they saw the child with Mary as mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. This is God's word for us today. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Well, God, even as you so kindly and graciously descended to us on that first Christmas long ago, even now, would you kindly and graciously help us? You have given us your spirit. Would you, by the power of your spirit, help us as we come to your word? Help us to hear it. Help us to understand it. Help us to see your son, the one to whom it all points. Help us to respond in the way that we ought. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since the dawn of time, human beings have gazed up at the stars. And if you've ever looked up at a starry sky at night, there's just something about it that we all kind of experience, at least at some time or another, we all experience that there's just something about it that makes you just ponder the nature of human existence. I wonder if it's because looking at the stars, we're kind of seeing the intersection between heaven and earth. I mean, we are on this fixed 
place on this planet, looking up into this seemingly endless ocean of a universe, the stars in the sky are like these fixed points in the heavens. We can stand here and look up and see them there, and I think just something about that makes us wonder about our significance in such a vast universe. But for the most part, when you and I look up at the stars and ask questions like, how did we get here and what's all this for? We typically don't expect the stars to answer. I mean, we don't, we don't typically expect the stars to actually then realign themselves as if to say, oh, come on, I'll show you. But the story of Advent is the story of how the stars aligned in order to lead us to the answers to the deepest questions of life. Today is the first Sunday of Advent. Advent, that's this season in the life of the church where we begin to prepare to, to celebrate the arrival of Jesus in his first coming as we look back to that first Christmas, as well as to help us to, to anticipate the arrival of Jesus in the future once again in his second coming. And this year, if you've been here, you know we got a little bit of a running head start as we started the Gospel of Matthew a couple of weeks ago. But today, we come to what is likely a familiar story to many of us. The story of the so-called wise men who looked up at the stars. In fact, there's even a chance that this past weekend, after Thanksgiving, many of us probably put up some kind of nativity scene in our homes or maybe even out in our front yards, perhaps featuring these wise men. In most depictions, there are three, although we don't actually know how many there were. It could have been, well, at the very least it was two, but it could have been two dozen for all we know. And believe me, there's a lot more about them that we don't know. I mean, who were these wise men? I mean, wise men is how our Bibles refer to them anyway. You might have heard them called magi. Magi is actually the Greek term that's used right here to refer to them that we translate wise men. It's also the Greek term that we get the word magic from. But make no mistake, don't think about people who use sleight of hand or don't think about people who play tricks and pull rabbits out of hats. These magi were like ancient scholars and, and scientists, kind of all wrapped into one. They studied texts, they studied world religions, they studied philosophy, they studied the world, the natural world around them, including the skies and the stars in them. And here in our Advent story, it is one star in particular that stands out unlike any other star that gets their attention and leads them to a child unlike any other child. Again, lots of questions we don't know the answers to. How did they know to follow the star? How do they even know to look for a child? Again, questions we don't have great answers to, but we can make guesses. This past week, Dave Jansen dared me to title this message, Daniel's Boys. I almost did. If only he had triple dog dared me, I may have. 
But there's some speculation, and I mean good speculation, that the Magi here, the Magi's knowledge anyway, was a result of the prophet Daniel's influence hundreds of years earlier. I mean, Daniel, if you remember, we went through the book of Daniel a few years ago. Daniel was this young boy in Judah who was taken away off into captivity in Babylon, and eventually he was put in charge of all the wise men in Babylon to the east. Perhaps even hundreds of years later, these magi, these wise men were influenced by Daniel's influence over the wise men. Or perhaps they even knew the the oracle of Balaam, going all the way back hundreds and hundreds of years to the book of Numbers. This guy, Balaam, who was almost a magi of sorts in his own day, he prophesied this in Numbers 24. He said, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter. That's like a special staff that was carried by rulers to symbolize their sovereignty. A scepter shall rise out of Israel. Maybe these magi were Daniel's boys, or maybe they were Balaam's. We don't really know. What we know is that they were looking up in search of something, and God moved heaven and earth to lead them to an awareness of the birth of this Savior King. And that's the real point of the story. Let me say it this way. On this first Sunday of Advent, friends, Advent is all about how God moves heaven and earth to lead people like you and me to an awareness of his Savior King. The question that we need to ask this morning in light of that is how will we respond? God moves heaven and earth to bring people like you and I to an awareness of this Savior King. The question is, how will you respond if God so aligned the stars to bring you to an awareness of this Savior King? How are you going to respond? And really, there's three responses that the story puts before us this morning, each one easily captured with a word. And the first one is simply this, opposition. God moves heaven and earth to bring people to an awareness of his Savior King, and some will respond with opposition. We see that here in this character of of King Herod. The Magi follow the star that signaled to them that the King of the Jews had been born. So they come to Jerusalem, of all places, the, the capital city of Judea, and they just start asking around. I mean, they don't go right to Herod. They don't go right to the, to the palace where he is. They just start asking around Jerusalem, the capital city, as if everyone there should just know. They say, where is the one born king of the Jews? Which I find kind of slightly amusing, since Herod was the one who wore the crown and carried the title of technical king of the Jews. And yet they are completely uninterested in him. You see, everyone knew that Herod was the technical king of the Jews, but no one thought Herod was the Christ. The Christ being God's special king, God's unique and different and, and anointed king, a king unlike any of the kings they had had before, a king from the line of David, 
from the line of Abraham. If you remember going back to, to week one, Matthew's detailed genealogy to demonstrate to us that Jesus is, in fact, this promised offspring of Abraham and offspring of David, the, this promised king who would bring about blessing to all nations. And we heard last week that not only was he the king to bring about blessing to all nations, but he is the one to come and save his people from their sins. No, they are asking about that kind of special king. And everyone knew, yeah, Herod wore the crown, but he's not that guy. And so word of their search gets to him. And Matthew tells us in verse 3, when Herod heard this, he was troubled. Some of your versions say he was deeply disturbed. And that deep disturbance is the very thing that's going to motivate his actions. And so he begins a, a search of his own. He gathers the, the religious leaders to ask them, hey, where is this Christ? Where is this long-awaited, promised Savior King supposed to be born? He gathers them all together to ask. And it says a lot right there, the fact that Herod didn't even know. He probably could have asked any person in the city of Jerusalem at that point, and they probably would have known because everyone else knew the answer is easy, Bethlehem. Bethlehem, because this is the promised Davidic king, and that's where David's from. Everyone knew, seemingly everyone knew except Herod, that this is where this king was to be born. But listen, this reveals a lot more than Herod's ignorance. It reveals that Herod actually doesn't have a problem believing that God has actually brought the Savior King into the world. He has no problem believing that. No, Herod has an issue with allowing anyone else in this world, brought by God or otherwise, to threaten his own rule. Which is why we're right to be suspicious when Herod tells the wise men, hey, yeah, go, go to Bethlehem. Go find him, come back and tell me where he is so that I can come and worship him too. Friends, we know already that he's being deceptive. I mean, we know because how this story ends, these wise men who were divinely led there will be divinely warned not to go back as well. Not to mention, we're going to see next, next week very plainly what Herod's full plan is. I'll just give it away right now. Herod's plan is actually to kill the child. But what Matthew's showing us here is that God moves heaven and earth to bring people to an awareness of his Savior King, and some people will respond with outright opposition. And listen, you might hear that and think, that's odd. I mean, maybe you might even think, listen, that's, that's laughable that this guy, a grown man who wears a crown and carries the title of king, would feel threatened by a child. But listen, and I'll be honest, it feels odd for me to say this. There is something that Herod actually gets right. You see, God has put this savior king in the world in order to rule over his people. I mean, just like Micah foretold, from you, Bethlehem, shall come a 
ruler. This is a child. Even just by his mere arrival on the scene in his birth, he has a kingship claim over all of our lives. Friends, we didn't elect him. We didn't choose him. He doesn't come to us to ask us, hey, what sort of agenda would you like me to to enact in all the world? And friends, to call him king, to call him the Christ and to recognize him as king is to recognize that he has a rightful rule in our lives. And listen, you don't need to be in Herod's shoes to oppose anybody like that. You don't need to be in Herod's shoes to oppose anyone, Christ child or otherwise, who might challenge your sense of autonomy and freedom. And to put it plainly, if the most important thing to you is to be the one who always gets to set the agenda in your own life, to be the one who wears the crown, so to speak, to be the one who's always in charge of you, to be the the master of your own fate, the captain of your own destiny, you will oppose the rule and reign of God's Savior King over your life. But listen here, there's another response. It's more subtle than the outright opposition, but it is every bit as dubious. No, one way to respond is opposition, but another is with indifference. God moves heaven and earth to bring people to an awareness of his Savior King, and some will respond with indifference, with meh. We see that in the characters of the the religious leaders there of Jerusalem. I mean, these are the the chief priests and the scribes. This is the first time in Matthew's gospel that we meet these two groups. But make no mistake, they're going to come back up again and again throughout this story. For now, what you and I need to know is that these two groups are actually often in opposition to each other. These are actually typically groups that disagree with one another, disagree with certain interpretations of the Old Testament scriptures. They disagree with the best way to bring about God's kingdom, God's rule on earth. And yet what they're showing us here, what Matthew is showing us here, is that when it comes to understanding where the Messiah would be born, they are united. There is absolutely no disagreement according to the scriptures, specifically the prophet Micah, the long-awaited promised Messiah would come and rescue and rule God's people. He would be born in Bethlehem. Now listen, friends, Matthew, more than any other gospel writer, is concerned to show us again and again and again, that Jesus, the coming of Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the death, resurrection of Jesus, all of it is in fulfillment of the Old Testament scriptures. But that's actually not Matthew's point here. In fact, Matthew doesn't even tell us that typical thing that he says. He goes, this all happened in order to fulfill what was written. He doesn't say any of that. In fact, Matthew is not the one who's saying anything about Micah. It's the characters in the story who are talking about Micah. Matthew's point here is to show us how all these so-called religious people in Jerusalem, they all knew Bethlehem was the place to look. 
And they all had heard. I think we are absolutely supposed to understand as these wise men came into Jerusalem and said that all Jerusalem was troubled along with Herod. No, news of their search, news of this star, news of the birth of this child had absolutely spread through the city. We should expect that they would have heard the same. And yet they all knew Bethlehem was the place to look. But none of them do. None of them do anything. I mean, I don't know. This might actually be the most remarkable thing in the story. I mean, do you know how far it is from Jerusalem to Bethlehem? Well, I just, I literally heard someone whisper. <laughs> it's about six miles. Maybe even five miles, depending on like where you start and begin. I mean, even just this past year, I had the opportunity to travel to Israel. There's places you can stand and you can look over there and see Jerusalem. And then you can look over there and see Bethlehem from the same spot. Like a lot of people could get up and jog there in under an hour. Okay, maybe not like all of us, but like. There's people who could easily make that run in less than an hour. And if you had like a donkey, like it's an easy ride. This is the Messiah. This is God's promised, long-awaited Savior, King. This is the thing that everyone's supposed to be waiting for. It would not take much for them to get up and go. And yet they cannot be bothered. Isn't it amazing how God can move heaven and earth to bring people to an awareness of his Savior King, and we can respond with absolute indifference? Let's not think we're incapable of the same mistake today. And there are so many things in this world to occupy our interest, even during the season to occupy our interest. I mean, why devote any time and attention in an already limited, stressed out life and schedule to think about something that happened 2,000 years ago, to think about some figure who was born some 2,000 years ago? I mean, I've got stuff to do, places to go, people to see. Listen, you may not ever say something like that. You might think, no, 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 I'm, I consider myself a religious person. Obviously, I would get up and, and go. Listen, friends, I think there's a sense in which being a so-called religious person might actually put us at particular risk. Familiarity can often breed indifference and the same is true with this figure. Familiarity with religious things, even familiarity with the scriptures, even this time of year, familiarity with all these, these Christmas stories can actually breed a sense of indifference. Listen, friends, what you need to know this morning is that indifference is not all that different than opposition is actually just opposition in a juvenile form because eventually this child king will become full grown and he will make the claim that if you or I want to have any real hope in this life, 
any real hope of a life with God, then you've got to come to him. You've got to come through him. And later in this same story, these same religious leaders who are here indifferent, eventually they are not going to just be indifferent. Eventually these same groups of people will come to oppose him just like Herod and they will seek to put the Savior King to death. In fact, they will even succeed where Herod fails. Friends, indifference is just a path that leads to the road of opposition. But not all respond that way. Not all respond with opposition or indifference. No, when God moves heaven and earth to bring people to an awareness of his Savior King, some will respond in worship. We see this very clearly in the characters of these wise men. I mean, that's the whole express purpose of their trip is to come to see this child, to find him, and to worship. This is the very thing that God puts his Savior, King, into the world for. Not only to rescue his people, not only to rule over his people, but to receive worship from his people. And as we see their response, friends, we learn a thing or two about genuine adoration. I mean, just think about their trip. Not five or six miles. Some 500 plus miles across desert sands through the heat of the day, through the cold of night. I mean, just let your, just let your imaginations kind of run with that a little bit. I mean, we tend to kind of depersonalize these mysterious figures because we don't know much about them. But I mean, who knows? Who knows about what potential family or, or friends, close friends, these magi had back home? Who knows who they were missing on this long, certainly many months long journey? Who knows what birthdays or soccer games they missed? Who knows what responsibilities they had to leave unmet? Who knows what kind of projects they had to leave undone while they journeyed, and yet none of that, none of that seems to matter to them. I mean, they don't seem to think that they're on the losing end of this situation. As they head out from Jerusalem once again, and the star emerges once again, leading them to the exact place where the Christ child was. Matthew tells us, verse 10, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. That's a lot of words. They Rejoiced, like he could have said, like they were, they rejoiced. But no, they rejoiced exceedingly. This is an excessive rejoicing that they did not just with joy, but with great joy. My friends, genuine adoration is not fueled by some sort of cold, detached sense of duty as if these. These men were just kind of hired to make the journey. No, genuine adoration. Genuine worship before the Savior King is filled with exponential joy. Even if it comes at great cost. I mean, this whole journey came at great cost to themselves and not even just the journey itself. I mean, they would go home far less richer men than when they had left because of the great gifts they brought to offer this child in worship. Matthew tells us they went into the house 
they saw the child with his mother and fell down and worshiped him. And opening their treasures, treasures, they offered him gifts. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. These are items of incredible value. These are some of the most expensive things in that world and that day that you could get your hands on and they come so that they could take their hands off of them and gift them to the one who was born as the Savior King. Friends, genuine adoration is joy-filled and sacrificial all at the same time. Doesn't that give us a picture of where all this is going? I mean, just think about this for a moment. When those magi, when those wise men walked into that little house in Bethlehem to behold this child when they bowed down before him and worshiped him and gave him their treasures. What had this child accomplished to this point? I mean, what had he actually done in the world to deserve any of this? Nothing. He had not yet done anything yet in the world. He had not done anything but be born and yet already, even already just in his existence, just in his presence, just in himself being there, he was already worth all of their sacrificial, joyful worship as they bowed down before him, friends. How much more so should we? How much more so should you and I, who have come to an even greater awareness of all this Savior King would do, how much more so should we sacrificially and joyfully worship him and lay down everything before him, the one who we eventually learn he joyfully came from heaven to earth. He descended to become like one of us and he lived the perfect life that we could never live and he laid down his life for us. The greatest treasure in the world, his life, he laid it down to take away our sins. How much more should we be able to worship this Savior King than them? And listen, here's the really good news. When God moves heaven and earth to bring people to an awareness of this king, it's not just that some people will worship, it's actually that any person can come and worship. Friends, listen, this, this entire story is completely upside down. Which, by the way, as an aside, should give us some confidence that Matthew didn't make it up. Because you would not make up a story like this. Friends, these are the last people. That's why we have these questions about who are the wise men and where they come from and how they know. These are the last people that we would ever expect to expect this king, to know about the king, to come look for the king, and to worship the king. And all of the people that we would normally expect to know about this king and look for the king and expect the king and come worship the king, 
they can't be bothered or they just want to kill him. I mean, Herod should have been the first one to say, that's it. Everybody in Jerusalem, stop what you're doing. Take everything that you have. Let's all go out and find this child and let's everybody, let's come and worship him. And yet it's these weird wise guys from Babylon, perhaps, or Persia, or some other place. These are Gentiles. These are the kinds of people that when they walked into Jerusalem, most Jews would be like, I don't want anything to do with these guys. And these are the ones who lead the nations who will come and worship this king. Listen, this is what is so good about Christmas. If you are a long way off from God this morning, if you are a long way off, guess what? Seek him anyway. Seek after him, and guess what? He will get you there. He will move heaven and earth. He can cause the stars to align to get you there. And listen, friends, it's not just that some will worship or even that any can, but all should. All should. Listen, friends. I talked at the beginning about looking up at the stars and asking the, the questions of life and pondering human existence. Friends, when these wise men found this child and worshipped him with this rejoicing with exceedingly with great joy worship. They didn't just find the child. They found the very thing that you and I were made for. We were made to worship we were made to have joy by laying down everything that we have in our lives before the king who would come and lay down his life for us. This is the great ends for which God created the world and brought matter and particles together and created mankind and breathed life into our nostrils and sent his son to bring us to do. And this is talked about, this is predicted all the way back in Isaiah chapter 60. Just listen to these words. In Isaiah, looking forward, looking to a day when God's Savior, King, would arrive. He says this, he says, The nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your son shall come from afar. Your daughter shall be carried on the hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall come to you. The young Camels of Midian and Ephah, all those from Sheba shall come and listen to this. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. 
This is a picture of God's great goal for all of creation. And even right here in this Advent story is a small just glimpse of what that day will be like when the Savior King comes again. Church, until he does, until he comes again, let's not wait. Let's worship him now with absolutely everything we have. Which, by the way, also includes an element of what you and I often think of as mission. I mean, this text is about worship, but it is also about mission. We tend to to disassociate those two things. We think, oh, worship, worship is about what, what I do, this vertical thing, this experience that I have between me and God. And then I, I kind of close that off. I shut that down. And then mission is this thing that we're, well, I'm kind of supposed to do, but I don't really do a whole lot. Was I go out there and tell other people about him. Friends, those two things go together. We see that right here with these same wise men. They are the first and the least expected, but the first. These strange figures are the first ones in the gospel of Matthew, the first human beings, to proclaim the good news of Christ, to proclaim to all of Jerusalem and to any who would hear the good news that Christ, our Savior King, has been born. Friends, it's no wonder. Look, we're going to see this. Week after week after week throughout the Gospel of Matthew, there's no, or it's no wonder why Matthew concludes this whole thing with the Great Commission where Jesus says, all authority in heaven and in earth have been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. It's been said that mission exists because worship doesn't. Because our worship of this king is not just the great goal for which God made all the creation. It is the great purpose that we have been given to be on mission with and for this king as an act of worship to him so that all others might come to know and worship this king as well. And friends, that's what Advent, that's what Advent is all about. As men on earth look up at the stars in heaven, God sends his son from heaven to earth to be the savior king. And he tells all, all who will hear, he says, come and see any and all and go and tell every and all. I pray that we will. Amen. Church, let's spend a brief moment just reflecting on these words together.